do appreciate uh, everyone being here this morning. We're glad for the presence of each individual here. Uh, most of us are regular members here at Oak Mountain, but we do have some who are with us uh, for the first time, and uh, we're grateful for your presence. As we say from time to time, if you're looking for a place to be a regular member, we certainly would uh, like for you to consider the church here at Oak Mountain. And if you have questions about uh, who we are, what we teach, what we stand for, uh, we'd be uh, glad to sit down with you and answer any questions that you might have. We're glad you're here today. Uh, much of the religious world, of course, has been uh, used this weekend uh, to uh, commemorate in a special way the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We hope those things are important to you every day, every day of the year. We hope that the uh, death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus is a priority in your life, that it has an impact on the way you live your life, uh, in the day-to-day -day decisions that you make, and just how you conduct your, li your life in, uh, every day in, in the way that you live your life. So we're not going to set aside uh, special activities today. We hope that, uh, again, the resurrection of Jesus is impactful for us every day and every week. I'll invite you today to turn to the 11th chapter of the book of Mark, Mark chapter 11. We're going to look at uh, some actions or an act in the life of Jesus. Uh, we'll just begin by noting that the prophets that we read about throughout the Bible in the Old Testament, not only did they, they preach and communicate God's message through their preaching, but sometimes in their actions they communicated God's message. He communicated God's will through not only what they said and what they preached, but at times especially what they did. I'm mindful of Hosea the prophet, for example. God told him to go and marry a harlot, go and marry a prostitute. And so he does, goes and marries her. God tells him to name the children that she has, some special names. And so he does. And then when she leaves him and goes back to her former way of life, God tells Hosea to go in and take her back again. And so those actions communicate a message. In that particular case, that describes God's relationship with Israel. Israel was unfaithful to God. It's as if she, were, uh, she was practicing spiritual, spiritual harlotry. And yet God takes her back again. And so Hosea could say that, and he does, but he also demonstrates that and communicates that message from God by his actions. Jeremiah was forbidden to marry. On one occasion, Jeremiah was told to take a waistband, a sort of a belt, and bury it at the Euphrates. Now, that's a long way from where Jeremiah lived, but he did that. He went in and buried the waistband in the cleft of the rock, and then sometime later he was told to go back and dig it up again. And when he did, it was rotten, it was, wasn't useful, and again, that described the condition of Israel. Ezekiel was told to write the word Judah on one stick and the, the word Joseph on another stick and then bind those sticks together. And that communicated that Judah and Israel, although separate, would, be, would come back together and be unified one day, that is, in the kingdom of Christ. In Isaiah chapter 20, in one of the more unusual actions, God tells Isaiah to walk around naked. And he does for three years. Of course, that, that is a description of, in, in that uh, sort of uh, prophetically active way, 
what would happen to Israel when she is carried off into captivity. And so the prophets of God not only spoke the message and preached the message, they also at times when God directed them to, acted the message out as well. Well, that's what we find Jesus doing in Mark chapter 11. Now this event takes place in the last week of Jesus, the, the days leading up to the crucifixion. In the early part of Mark chapter 11, Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem. He's riding on a donkey, and there are crowds of people, and they're calling out to him, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so we call this the triumphal entry. Jesus going into the city, great crowds, celebrating his entry into the city. No doubt they thought that uh, the time was coming near, like Simon talked about in class, when when uh, Israel would rise up and throw off Roman occupation and oppression. And so they were hailing the entry of Jesus into the land. Then in Mark chapter 11, when Jesus enters into the land, it says that, or enters into the city, that he looked around and noticed what was being done there. And so he goes into the city, he looks around, this is verse 11, he looked, looking around at everything. Then he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. And so I want you to get that idea in your mind. Jesus goes through the gates of the city. The great crowds are there. And then he gets into the city, and he looks around at what's going on around the, the temple and around the city. And notice he sees a lot of activity, lots of things going on there. There would be thousands of people in the city celebrating and commemorating the, the Passover at this time. And so he would see all kinds of people, no doubt, hearing different languages spoken, I suppose, and different kinds of dress and all, all those sights. So he takes note of that, okay, makes some observations. Then he leaves the city and goes to Bethany, just a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem, and he spends the night there. You remember he's got friends in Bethany. That's where Mary and Martha and Lazarus live. And so he's got friends there, and he spends the night there in, in Bethany. And then he comes back the next day. And this is our passage that we're going to focus on this morning. He comes back the next day, verse 15. He entered the temple, began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple, overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves, and he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through, uh, through the temple. And he began to teach and to say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you've made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this. They began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him. For the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. And so he goes into the temple, the temple area, not the temple building itself, but, but that courtyard around the temple. And he begins to overthrow these tables, and you can imagine that, the kind of scene that that created. There are, there are four groups of people mentioned here in this particular passage. Sometimes we call this the cleansing of the temple. Four groups of people here. There are those who are buying and selling and so here within the temple precinct, the temple property, the temple grounds, there are people who set up stalls. I mean, it'd be something like going to uh, uh, some sort of informal uh, 
place where people are buying and selling on the weekends, maybe in a park or something like that, and they, they've got their stalls set up where they're selling their wares. And so inside the temple grounds, the temple property, people have set up stalls and they're buying and selling. And then another group of people here are mentioned, the money changers. Well, these are businessmen who were exchanging forms of currency. And so people would come from other countries, other lands, and they would bring with them the money of their own country. For, for example, if you came from Rome, you might bring denarii with you. But when you get to Jerusalem and you want to do business there, maybe even pay some of your taxes there, like the temple tax, you need to change those denarii into shekels. And so like when we go to a foreign country, if we go to England, we might want to change our dollars into pounds if we want to buy and sell. And so that's the idea here. So you, you bring your money with you. There are these businessmen. They're set up. They've got their table set up. And you step up to the table and you say, I've got so many denarii. And they exchange that. They, they give you shekels in, in exchange. Now, they're not going to do that for free. <laughs> they're, they're making a profit from that. Just like today when you go to England or another country and you exchange your money, there's a fee that you pay. And so, and so people are paying for that convenience. They're paying for that exchange. And then there's another group of people. There are people that are selling doves. What's that all about? Well, sacrifices are being made at the temple during this period of time, of course. And the poorer people could sacrifice a dove. And so instead of bringing your doves with you from Rome or wherever you're coming from, when you get to Jerusalem, you can buy a dove and buy what you need and then offer that in sacrifice. And again, that's, that's simply a convenience. And so they're selling doves. They're selling these sacrificial animals. And again, they're not performing that as a free service. They're making a profit from that. And apparently there are those that were just walking through the temple property, going in through the through the wall, going in through the gate, and, and just kind of as a shortcut, instead of walking around, they're walking through carrying their merchandise. And so when Jesus enters into the city, and remember we talked about how he looked around, and then he leaves and goes to Bethany and spends the night, no doubt he saw those things. I'm, I'm sure he'd seen them before. But again, he takes a notice of those things and makes observations about how people are behaving and acting and conducting themselves on the temple property. One commentator says that these things that we've talked about had the effect of transforming the court of Gentiles into an oriental bazaar and a cattle mart. I thought that was a pretty good description of what's going on. And so Jesus isn't in the temple building itself, but he's on the grounds, he's on the property. And what's being done there has the effect of turning the property into a bazaar and a cattle mart. And so Jesus is upset by that. And he just disrupts their business. He overturns the tables of the money changers. And you can imagine what, 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 might have, what must have resulted. Goes over here, he turns that table over. You can just imagine the coins flying in the bags of money, money coming out and being scattered all over the place. He turned over the seats of those who were selling doves. He stood in the way of those who are 
passing through and wouldn't let them pass through. So you can imagine, no, you're not, you're not using the temple property as a shortcut. No, you're going to have to walk around, you know. So he's standing in their way. And uh, John tells us in the second chapter of John, on that occasion, he made a scourge of cords. But not only does Jesus act, he also speaks. Now, I don't imagine we have a complete record of what Jesus said. It says that he was teaching them. But both his actions and his words teach the crowds. Both what he does, turning over the tables and turning the seats of the people selling doves, turning those seats over and standing in people's way as they were trying to pass through the temple property. But he also has something to say about these things. Verse 17, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? You've made it a robber's den. What's Jesus upset about? Why is he so upset about these things? Well, let's think about that. You know, the passage doesn't suggest that there's something wrong with what these people were doing. It's not wrong to exchange money. It wouldn't be wrong to exchange denarii for shekels. That wouldn't be wrong. It wouldn't even be wrong to make a profit from that. It wouldn't be wrong to sell doves so that people have the necessary animals to sacrifice. And it wouldn't be wrong to make a profit from that. Now, they might be gouging the people, as suggested by the words, you've made it into a robber's den. And so maybe they're charging exorbitant rates for, for doing those things, but there's not anything wrong with that per se. It's not so much what they were doing, but where they were doing it. The temple was meant to be a house of prayer. It was meant to be a place of worship and communion with God for all the nations. And they had made it a street bazaar, a commercial zone, a place of business. This is supposed to be a place of worship. And you've degraded it. You've made it nothing more than a place of uh, doing business. They had failed to distinguish between the holy and the profane the sacred and the secular, the devoted and the common. And so in commercializing the temple, and no doubt, I'm sure the thinking of many of those businessmen were, hey, we're going to do our business where the crowds are, where the people are. Let's go to the temple. That's where the crowds are. That's going to be a good business opportunity. And so in doing that, they had degraded the sacred place and made it common. And in doing that, they had failed to give God Himself, who made the temple holy, the place of honor due Him. Can you see that? And so in degrading the temple and making it a place of business, they're really degrading God Himself. It's God who makes the temple holy. And in, 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 in they're disrespecting the holy place. They're disrespecting the one who made it holy. So I want to make a few observations about all that this morning. God emphasized, especially in the Old Testament, the importance of the holy, the holy place, holy things, and, and the sacred. And he stressed the need to understand the difference between the holy and the common. God means for us to understand the difference between what is holy and what is common, or what is sacred and what is profane, sometimes is the words that we might use. In Ezekiel chapter 22 and in verse 26, 
Ezekiel in this chapter, he's uh, in a rather strong way criticizing the leaders of God's people. He criticizes the rulers. He criticizes the priests. And among the things that they had done wrong, verse 26 says, The priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They've made no distinction between the holy and the profane. They've not taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they hide their eyes from my Sabbaths, and I'm profaned among them. And so instead of honoring him as the holy God, you know, high and holy, they have brought him down. They've made him a common thing. They've made him a profane thing. Later on in the book of Ezekiel chapter 44, we find a similar passage as Ezekiel looks forward to a situation when the priest will teach the people the difference between the holy and the profane. And so they're not doing that in Ezekiel's day. They haven't done that. He looks forward to a time when they will do that. They're going to emphasize, drive home to the people the difference between the holy and the common, the holy and the profane. Now God possesses innate holiness. He's holy in Himself. He's holy because of who He is. John says that He is light and in Him is no darkness at all. And so God is holy. His name is holy. The book of Leviticus emphasizes that over and over and over again. The holiness of God is emphasized and, and driven home to the reader. For example, Leviticus chapter 11 and verse 44, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves. Make yourselves holy and be holy for I am holy. You shall not make for yourselves uh, unclean with anything of the swarming things and so forth. And so you make yourself holy for I am holy. Now you're my people. You're associated with me. You're associated very closely with me. And so I expect you to be holy, that is live holy lives in the way that I am holy as well. I know you remember, and maybe you've already thought of this passage, Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees the Lord in the temple, and the seraphim are flying around, and they're calling out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of His glory. In Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 15, Thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place. And so over and over again, God is emphasizing to His people, I am holy. I expect you to be holy. I expect you to respect me as someone who is holy. Holy things are closely associated with God and are sacred. They, they possess holiness in themselves. They should be honored accordingly. Now, they're not objects of worship, but they are to be respected, and they are to be treated with honor. They're not common, and treating them as if they were profaning them would be serious error. For example, I've used this example before, there were uh, implements and tools used in the sacrificial system at the temple. There were pans and shovels and all sorts of instruments like that. But they were set aside for the use in the temple to make sacrifices to God. If someone were to say, you know, my latrine needs to be cleaned out. My shovel is broken. I'm going to go down to the temple. I'm going to get one of those shovels and use it to 
Well, that'd be a serious error, wouldn't it? Now, nothing wrong with doing that. But it need to be done. But using a holy object to do it, well, that'd be a serious, serious error. It's interesting, in a couple of passages in the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers chapter 20, remember the incident at Meribah when Moses strikes the rock? You remember that? Moses strikes the rock instead of speaking to the rock. Now, what, what, what did he do wrong? Well, verse 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of Israel, you're not going to be able to go into the promised land. And so in disregarding God's commands, Moses failed to treat him as holy, to give him the respect and the honor that's due him because of his holiness. Same thing is found over in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, in the episode concerning Nadab and Abihu. He offered strange fire that the Lord hadn't commanded, and so they had not treated him as holy. They disregarded his word. They treated his word just like it was the word of any other man or any man. So they'd profaned it. They'd made it common. There are lots of holy things in the Old Testament. Priests were consecrated because they dealt with God on behalf of the people. They were associated with God. Their priestly garments were holy array. They're holy places, a holy city, holy food. The food that the priests ate was holy food. Israel was a holy people because of their relationship with God. They offered holy gifts to the Lord. The temple furnishings were holy objects. And of course, as we mentioned a moment ago, God has a holy name. We've already seen that, Isaiah chapter 52. His name is holy. The 111th Psalm in verse 9, holy and reverend is His name. When Jesus cleansed the temple, He's reminding the people to show proper respect for the holy place. This is God's place. This is where God dwells. This is where we worship God. You've degraded it. You've made it common. You do it just to, to do your, you come here just to do your business just like you would out here in the street somewhere. And that was completely inappropriate. Now, I want to make a few observations about all this this morning. We, we live in an age, I want you to think about the age in which we live. We live in an age when all things have been made common. Everything is common. Nothing is sacred is one of the slogans of the age, isn't it? Nothing is sacred. And so we, we don't consider things, I'm speaking of people in general in our culture, don't uh, make a distinction between what is holy and what is common, what is sacred and what is profane. It's part of a trend in our world towards spiritual and moral inertia. You know, if something is inert, there's not, there's not much energy in it. It's just kind of lying there. And that's kind of where we're headed spiritually, spiritual inertia, just, just sort of lying there. Moral inertia, you know, not, not, not any real strong feelings about right and wrong. And we don't have many, many strong feelings about what is holy and what is common. Everything is common. Let me give you a couple of examples. The use of God's name in our world today is alarming. God says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, the Ten Commandments, 
You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Don't use the name of God in vain. Don't use it in an empty and meaningless way. Of course, in the New Testament, we are forbidden in a couple of passages that come to mind especially to use inappropriate speech, Colossians 3 and verse 8, to remove, remove abusive speech out of your mouth. Go back to a similar passage in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 22. He says, uh, beginning in that particular passage, let me go down to... Um, uh, that we're to, to remove, uh, verse 29, unwholesome speech from our mouths. We're not to speak what is blasphemy. So we're not in the New Testament to use God's name in vain. I'm reminded in Acts chapter 19, you remember that story where uh, there are certain Jewish exorcists, they attempted to use the name of Jesus, sort of a, a magic word, to cast demons out of people, so they're using the name of the Lord in an inappropriate way. Remember how that ended up? The man with the demon, he pounced on those guys and, and they fled out, and they fled, fled uh, defeated. God's name is holy. It's to be revered. But today... The words that we use to refer to God are not reserved for worship or used in reverent ways. The word God, and I understand that's not God's personal name as revealed in the Old Testament, but it's a word that we use to refer to God. That the word God, the word Lord, oh my Lord, you've heard people say that. They're not expressing any kind of reverence in that. It's just a word. It's a vain use of this word that we use to refer to God. The word Jesus, the word Christ, combinations are nothing more than meaningless expressions used to express emotions. They're fillers, taking a verbal space in our conversation. We've profaned the name of God. And I hear little children, I mean little children, using God's name, these words that we use to refer to God, just using those words in vain. I wonder if Jesus would say, the Lord's name is holy and reverend. You've made it nothing more than an expletive. The worship of God has been degraded to entertainment status. Of course, now that, I'm, it shouldn't surprise us <laughs> because we live among people who have to be entertained every waking hour. You know? Uh, the, you know, being bored or having nothing to do or nothing in front of us to entertain us, that, that's the worst of all possible situations. And so the TV is on, the radio is on, our phone is on, what, uh, all the time. We've got to be entertained. And so it's no wonder that the worship of God has been degraded to entertainment status. In order to draw people in, in order to appeal to the people, churches have adopted all sorts of innovations borrowed from the entertainment and business marketing world. People have confused spirited worship with spiritual worship. And so, you see, worship is spiritual if it's spirited. That's the way people think. If, it, if it's moving, if it's active, if it moves me, if there's a lot of going on, if it's energetic. and Well, that's, well we don't want to confuse spiritual worship with spirited worship. In some situations, some uh, periods of worship, 
All the time has to be filled with activity that excites us. Quiet time spent in personal meditation and contemplation when the worship focuses silently on spiritual things is to be avoided at all costs. Silence kills worship. It, it deadens worship. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you remember in instituting, uh, as Paul is discussing the Lord's Supper, it's not instituting it, he's discussing it. He says, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat. You need some time to sit quietly, without distraction, focusing on spiritual things, and examining ourselves. Congregational hymn singing from the heart, which is what we're supposed to do, sing and make melody with the heart. And so congregational hymn singing from the heart is replaced by stage productions complete with light shows and smoke machines. Success in worship is achieved when a person can say, I really felt excited as a result of that. I really was energized. I really could feel God's presence. The measure of success in worship to some people is whether my feelings were stirred as opposed to whether God was praised and pleased. In Revelation chapter 22 and verse 9, you remember when John fell to his knees to worship the angel who had been dealing with him. Remember what the angel said? Worship God. Don't worship me. Worship God. And when we come together for worship, that's, why our, that's where our focus needs to be. Worship God. I wonder if Jesus would say, my house should be called a house of prayer. You've made it a house of entertainment. Now, I've got to make one more observation, and I hope you don't get me wrong here. I understand that we don't observe religious holy days like some people do. We don't organize activities around the liturgical calendar. I understand that, and I'm not saying that we should. But I, as I drive around, the way Easter is promoted by churches is disturbing to me. Again, I'm not saying that we ought to go in for everything, I, 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 but I'm just saying... Now, you remember, Easter is supposed to be a commemoration of the resurrection of Jesus. And how is it promoted in our world? We're having a, an egg hunt for the kids. We're having an egg drop. Come, come, to our, come to our activity. The resurrection of Jesus is a sacred event. It confirms the deity of Jesus. Jesus is declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection of the dead, Romans 1 and verse 4. The resurrection of Jesus gives us hope that we ourselves will be raised. He's the sort of first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And so he's been raised, and that's an indication that we will be raised as well as we follow him. The death and resurrection of Jesus are the pattern by which we should live. And so we die to sin as Jesus died in regard to sin. And as he was raised, we are raised to walk in a new life. The resurrection of Jesus is a profound event. It's a sacred event. It's crucial in God's plan of salvation. If we believe with our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Unfortunately, it seems to a lot of people, even religious people, that the resurrection of Jesus is nothing more than an occasion to hunt eggs 
drop eggs and all those sorts of things. Just another indication that nothing is sacred in our culture. I wonder if Jesus would say, my death and resurrection are the way to your eternal life. You've made them into a carnival. If Jesus was upset by what he saw at the temple that day, how would he respond to what he sees today? <laughs> well, I, I'm convinced <laughs> that he would respond in the same way. He wouldn't be happy, he would be upset, he would be distressed. Why? Because in general, our culture has made the sacred common. It's made what is holy profane. And it's distressing. It's a tragedy. We've been talking this year about living in the fear of the Lord. And so living in the fear of the Lord. If we fear the Lord, we'll have the proper respect for those things that are associated with the Lord. We'll have a proper respect for His name. We'll have a proper respect for His worship. We'll have a, a respectful, the proper respect for His work and the things that He's achieved and the things that He has done in order to bring us into fellowship with Himself. Now, you know, I, I don't want to be seen as a complainer and a, a criticizer and, and, and like that, but I do want us to, to think about what we're doing and think about how we think about the Lord his, Himself, his name, his worship, his work, and what he's done for us. Let's be sure that we hold holy what is holy. And we consider sacred what's associated with God. That we fear him, that we fear those things in the way that we carry out our lives, in our language, in our behavior, our worship, and all of those things. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for the opportunity to come together to worship this morning. We pray that we have worshiped in spirit and truth. We pray, Father, that we have come before you with a correct sense of awe and respect, and that we worship you in, in fear and in awe as we sing these songs together and pray together and look into your word. Help us, Father, to appreciate your holiness, your greatness, your majesty, your splendor. And Father, we pray that in everything we do, in our words, in our attitude, in our actions, we will always give you the first place. We'll always pay to you the honor that you are due as the great and holy God, our Heavenly Father. We pray, Father, that the things we've done here today have, have reflected that that they have been honorable in the way that they should be, and that they've been pleasing to you, and that you accept our worship. If in some way, Father, we fall short of those things, we ask you to show them to us, to bring those things to our attention, so that we might give you the honor and the glory and the praise and the dominion that you deserve. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here today, you're not a Christian.